The Guardian. Don't you Brits feel like celebrating those 14 days of sporting glory? Of course you do. So why not do it with a strictly unofficial, but suitably stylish philosophy football design t-shirt? This unique t-shirt is a wearable, chronological, and color-coded record of an unforgettable fortnight. And for Guardian and Observer podcast fans, we have a special offer of three pounds off and free post and packaging. Curious? Well, to see how good this unique t-shirt looks and to take advantage of our listeners' offer, just go to guardian.co.uk slash podcast offers. I dare you. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we find out who's making headlines at Trinity Mirror, we look back at the Paralympics opening ceremony on Channel 4, and we talk to the man who composed this music for which award-winning television show? Elementary, my dear listener. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. To start, I'm joined in the pod by Media Guardian's Lisa O'Carroll and Mark Sweeney. And we begin this week at Trinity Mirror, which has got a new chief executive. Mark, who is it? They've chosen Simon Fox, who has been the chief executive of HMV for the last six years. He abruptly resigned about a month ago. People were wondering what his next move might be, but I don't know too many would have picked this. Is he the right man for the job, do you think? Could be. There's a lot of debate about that. When he joined HMV in 2006, the share price was 160p. It's now in single digits. But you could say the same about Trinity Mirror. Six years ago, it was 550p, and now it's about 39p. So uh, he's going from one basket case to another, you could say. And of course, uh, he succeeds um, Sly Bailey who left, uh, left a, a, a few months ago. And it's really been, it's been all change at the paper, hasn't it, Lisa, in terms of um, we've seen Richard Wallace left the Daily Operation and Tina Weaver left the Sunday paper. So, you know, he joins uh, certainly in, in terms of the national newspapers. There are, uh, some might say they're in transition. Other people might say they're in turmoil. It's been kind of paralysed, I think, in terms of direction over the last few years. So the last thing Sly Bailey had sanctioned by the board was the introduction of the seven-day operation, <clears throat> which means there's one editor for all three titles, the, the, the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror and the People. Yes, um, so Lloyd Embley. Yeah, Lloyd Embley with kind of weekday editors on the on weekday editor on the Daily Mail. But I think the staff there are looking for some, they're looking for direction, they're looking for leadership, they're looking for vision. Yeah, what are the challenges there, Mark? Because it goes beyond the, the three national newspapers, of course, at Trinity Mirror. Yeah, well, Basket Case might have been a bit harsh. We'll say on, HMV was online to make a profit. Trinity Mirror is profitable, but both of them have major structural issues. In print, we've got going to digital. In HMV, we've got music retailer, physical products, digital issues. Fox is obviously a man with a lot of credentials behind him. He was good enough for ITV to come within a whisker of hiring him two years ago. The job went to Adam Crozier, but only word has it is because Fox said, no, I want to stay and see HMV3. So if he was good enough for ITV, he could be good enough for Trinity. And the markets today seem to quite like the appointment. They did, they did. They got a, a 6% bump, although on small, small-ish share prices, you don't need much movement for a good, a good percentage move. However, he, they do seem to like it. There were a lot of questions over who they would get. There were not many names out there. There were a couple of internal candidates and very little speculation wider than that. So in terms of a name and a guy with good credentials, Fox fits the bill. 
And can he start the job straight away? He can't. He's under contract until 3rd of September with HMV. You thought that he might have been able to wriggle out of that, but it turns out his start date is the 10th of September. So he's got about a week to hone up on the history of newspapers before joining. Well, moving on, Mark has to go, presumably to write out that Simon Fox story. Um, But Lisa, Chris Blackhurst has been in the news this week. He's the editor of The Independent. And he warned that Lord Justice Leveson was loading a gun against the newspaper industry as he prepares his final report and recommendations following his inquiry into the press culture and ethics. This is, of course, the the Leveson report. He's not sitting this week and he hasn't been sitting for several weeks. So where's all this come from? Yeah, it kind of um, emerged over the last few days that there was a letter, a warning letter um, had gone out to all the major newspaper groups and regional newspapers, which is essentially a... A chronicle of all the criticisms levelled at the press during the last eight, nine months. Um, it's a confidential document. It runs to over 100, 100 pages. And written, we, by, written by Leveson? Yes, by, by the Leveson Inquiry. We wrote about it. I haven't seen the letter. It was described to me by several people. Excoriating was a word that was used to describe some of the criticism to me. But it was a real surprise that Chris Blackhurst came out on Radio 4, the media show, to talk about it. And... I think he got caught out, really, because he didn't understand that the. it seemed that the, the letter was intended to be one-sided, that under the Inquiries Legislate Act, these so-called Rule 13 letters are official warnings to people who are going to be criticised. Levison can't actually criticise anybody unless he's issued one of these warning letters and given the, the recipient enough time to respond. That's what this letter is. I think what's caused confusion behind the scenes is it seems to be an exhaustive list of everything that Levison has uh, discussed during the year, you know, thrown the kitchen sink at the industry, is how it was described to me. Blacker says he's thrown the book at the industry. but He, um, he said it was very, very one-sided. It was a diatribe. It was a point-by-point demolition of the industry, an indictment of the industry. He said he's very, very concerned if the tone of the warning letter is anything to go by. But from what you're saying, we shouldn't read this as a preview of what Leveson's going to say, more a sort of outline of some of the criticism. And here's your chance to respond before I actually do come up with my final document. Yeah, I guess like like a journalist does, if you've, if you've got a scenario, you need to go to your the, the person who you want to respond with the worst possible version of the story you've been told so that they've given an opportunity to come back and say, no, that's wrong, or you haven't got um, all the facts at uh, your fingertips and you should actually leave that out completely from your final report. It's not the first time Blackhurst has uh, criticised the Levson Inquiry, so it was deeply flawed uh, back at the start of the year. Yeah, yeah, he was. And also the Independent Sunday, the, the Sunday paper was also called, the editor of that was also called up after they published a report which was linked to testimony that was about to be given by Andy Coulson. So what happens next? Uh, will Levison have anything to say about it? And, and when will, uh, do we know when the report's going to be published? Well, he was really incensed by Blackhurst and anybody else, The Guardian, I think, as well. You could include in there um, that anybody was discussing this letter. But, you know, what does he expect? It's the same letter. Um, It went um, wide and far. People are talking about it as a big talking point. The inquiry issued a statement following Blackhurst's appearance on the radio show um, saying that he's extremely disappointed, i.e. furious, that has been discussed in the media and basically it got it wrong, that it was intended to be one-sided and... By its nature, nature, the letter was one-sided. And away from Leveson, there's been more arrests this week as a result of the various ongoing police investigations. Yeah, there have. Patrick Foster, a former Times media journalist, was arrested in connection with computer hacking. Bob Bird, ex-editor of the Scottish edition of the News of the World, was also arrested and charged in Scotland. 
And today, I think what surprised many people was that Tom Crone, the former legal manager of um, the News of the World and indeed News International, was arrested. Well, Lisa, thank you for that. All the latest news, of course, at mediaguardian.co.uk. Now, there's been no lack of acclaim for the stars and production team behind BBC One Sherlock, which will return for a third series next year. But one aspect of the show that was mentioned by showrunner Stephen Moffat in Edinburgh last week had me wanting to find out more. Another thing we should mention, by the way, just as I was watching that uh, clip from uh, uh, Scandal, is the music. Yes. Because that music yeah. is ravishing. Actually, Michael Price is sitting right there, I think, yes. And Michael Price and David Arnold worked with that. But, you know, that... Uh, and the theme tune you is... You don't normally hear no. music like that. And, and the theme tune is one of the best theme tunes of, of, yeah, of, of, for years. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. would have it i'm joined by michael price the composer whose credits also include band of brothers horrid henry and much else besides michael you co-composed the sherlock music with david arnold what were you trying to achieve what was the brief what we were trying to do really was capture the the spirit and the character and the verve and the intelligence of this incarnation of sherlock because it feels quite um it's got an epic feel to it and um it's quite uplifting with those kind of big strings in the middle, but it's also quite jaunty. Are there some harpsichords in there? Are they what? real ones or pretend <laughs> ones? Or? There's a, a sound which sounds similar to a harpsichord, but which is actually an, an auto harp, which is a sort of like a, a thing that you play on your lap traditionally and press buttons and scr- strum across the strings. But we've painstakingly sampled each note of that and built a special other instrument out of it. I mean, both Dave and I love... 60s and 70s TV themes, sort of John Barry stuff, Persuaders, all those kind of things. So if there's any oblique referencing going on in sounds, then it's probably back to that era, really. But I think the the kind of references only come to light after the event. What happens when you're actually writing things is that it's very much a kind of an automatic process in a sense in that you you kind of you you sit there and one one sound sounds right and one doesn't and one instrument will work and one doesn't and you can't quite verbalize at the time why that one's clearly nonsense but that one's amazing and then it's only when it's all finished you look back and kind of go oh okay we're we're very much referencing the sounds of the 70s or whatever but at the time we're just cracking on but how do the mechanics work do you sort of um, you know come up with uh come up with some music and then you, you know, uh, play it down the phone to, <laughs> to David or, uh, or you know, do you do a note each or uh, do you spend the entire time together? Or how does left, it work? I'll do the right. You do Watson, I'll do Sherlock. We tend, try, we tend to try not to either of us pick it apart too much in public, but let's leave it at one of the best-known tunes from the show was literally achieved over the phone with me having done a starting point, David then terribly nicely making it better whilst trying to not tell me that my first one was terrible. And, and, and we, we went round in circles humming it to each other on the phone until it just felt like a very natural thing. Mm-hmm. 
And it seems more broadly that, that music is, is more prominent in drama these days than it was, say, you know, 10 years ago or going much further back when I was growing up. Uh, and it certainly is in natural history shows. I mean, presumably that affects your business. But also, what do you make of it? Is there a danger that, uh, you know, it, it intrudes rather than, you know, enlightens or emphasises? I, I think, I mean, obviously I'm aware there was a certain amount of controversy about um, the level of, of background music. And, and there was a, a number of pejorative terms flying about about what the music in, that are in show is, is called. Because they, they turned the volume down, didn't they, in, um, in they, one of the natural... Was it Planet Earth, I think, or...? Yes, yes. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but they did, apparently. They redubbed it. But they stuck and their guns with Sherlock. I think the difference is, with a production that the music is dramatically conceived to be part of the story right from the beginning, and when there are gaps left in the drama to do it, then it's actually kind of easier to achieve something, hopefully, where all the different departments kind of get a day in the sun. There's a particular moment in the end of the last episode uh, of the second season of Sherlock when we spotted, when David and I uh, sat with director, producer, and spotted that episode, we, we came to a bit where, not sure how spoilery to be, but there's, there's a bit right at the end of the show when Watson gets knocked down by a bike and sees something terrible on the floor that he's certainly not expecting to see, which will either make sense if you've seen it or not. If you're Delicately done. And <laughs> they, we sat there and watched it, and, and in the temporary version that we were watching, there was no sound, and there was no dialogue, and there was sort of like a, you know, just a little bit of wind noise. And, and David and I looked at each other, and everybody in the room looked at each other, and the, and the director just said, oh, oh, that's where you do something brilliant for the next two minutes. It's kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> no pressure. I, yeah, no pressure at all then. But the, but the thing, one of the reasons I think why, why musically the, um, the last half an hour of that episode is something that I personally find very satisfying is because structurally there are points when the music is fully expressing, together with the wonderful performances on screen, but that there's room for it to breathe. And so you can do something strong and characterful and confident and and really go for it and get some great performances. I think perhaps the difficulty can come in programme making when all the departments are not in sync and you're maybe trying to compensate for something by putting some heavy-handed music over the top or you're really wallpapering underneath dialogue because it's a massive cliche, but less is definitely more. You know, if, if, you do, if you play all the time, you lose the impact when it comes in and, and people do do zone it out. And just finally, Michael, what are your kind of classic TV themes? What are your, what are your favourite theme tunes from years gone by? I mean, I, I've kind of brought to mind things like, um, you know, the Tour de France music uh, when it was on Channel 4, for instance, and um, Absolutely. Be, being willfully obscure, um, <laughs> the Richard Bryce sitcom Ever Degrees in Circles. Oh, really. which I loved. Yeah, no, that's a class pick. No, very... Incredibly sort of melancholy, wasn't it? Uh, like the programme itself. Very funny, but... Wonderful. Incredibly sad. The, the ones that, that that stick most strongly with with me are, are the childhood ones because they they really kind of on a good day we we try and catch it now but there's something that's so embedded within the program. So Grange Hill, what's wrong with Grange Hill? It's absolutely amazing. It's fun. It was it was quite a squelchy and and it wasn't even written for the show but was was picked out as a piece of library music but it was incredibly effective. Ski Sunday, not drama, but I mean that that for me was Sunday Sunday afternoons and was amazing. But then the, there are other tiny little bits of music which, which take on a meaning above and beyond. So the little piano theme at the end of The Incredible Hulk was just beautiful when, when Dr. Banner was walking away really sadly into the distance. So 
I think by the time David and I hang our, hang our composing boots up, whenever that will be, if we've contributed anything, even in a tiny way, for, for a few people that makes them attach a tune to a programme, then, then that's, a, that's a job well done. We turn our attention to the small screen now, and I'm delighted to say we've been joined by The Guardian's TV editor, Vicky Frost. Hello. Are you all recovered from Edinburgh, Vicky? Just about, I think. First up, the Paralympics. And in terms of viewing figures, Channel 4 almost picked up where the BBC left off. They had an average of 7.7 million viewers for the big curtain raiser and a peak of 10.9 million. Now, I thought that was their biggest audience since 2002, Big Brother, but I was rapidly corrected on Twitter and it turns out Friends and, well, a few other things have rated more. But it's still in their top 10 all-time audiences, I think. Lisa, what did you make of it? It was quite a different, very different experience to watching on the BBC. It didn't have that being there experience simply because you didn't have the studio with the, with the glass back, you know, looking out on the stadium. There were advert breaks, which were very irritating and took away from the night, I think. I think the presentation team, they might have been a bit more imaginative and not use Channel 4 news people. I mean, it was really, really obvious that when Claire Balding came on, and not very frequently, two or three times, I think, the energy levels just rocketed. She was the absolute star of the show and kind of reinforced what had happened during the BBC's uh, coverage of the Olympics. Yeah, you when know, she got so many plaudits, yeah. Yeah, even up in Edinburgh, people were asking Roger Mosey, you know, is she getting that chat show? Yeah, well, yeah, Jon Snow, as you mentioned, Jon Snow and um, and uh, his Channel 4 News colleague, Krishnan Guru Murthy, they, um, they anchored the thing. And, well, they came in for a bit of stick on Twitter, or, or Jon Snow did. Let me give you a few... Um, uh, a few comments, actually. This is from the Guardian website, I should say. Reader comments. Um, David Absalom said, uh, John Snow's determination to list every shitty thing that has happened in each of the countries uh, didn't impress him. And uh, Stuart RG said, too many adverts, which I imagine brought the same annoying groaning house- households apart from mine. How come Channel 4 can show a six-hour music festival with no adverts and yet 30 seconds into the ceremony go to an ad break? But Vicky, you can't really blame Channel 4 for showing ads. Uh, I mean, they're a commercial broadcaster. And when six million people are watching, uh, you know, someone might ask questions the next day if they, uh, if they dumped commercials entirely. It's really difficult, isn't it? It's, it's really difficult because, of course, they do need to attract advertisers and, and sell those slots in those most expensive slots, I guess. But equally, you do wonder whether they couldn't have maybe taken a longer view and said, well, hold on, actually, we've got to follow the BBC. We've got to show that we're going to cover it in as good a way, a different way, but as good a way, and sort of pull those people in for the whole of the Paralympics. And maybe it was worth sacrificing adverts during the opening ceremony in order to do that, particularly given how well the opening ceremony had gone for the BBC. So it feels like maybe they should have played the long game on that a little yeah, bit. It's a me. bit like, you know, in the States, the NBC over there, time shifting five hours, people were really annoyed that they couldn't watch the opening ceremony live. And then when it was screened, it was edited for an American audience. I mean, NBC admitted they'd got it wrong. And by the time it came to the closing ceremony, they screened it live. Yeah, and you'd think maybe Channel 4 might have been able to learn a little bit from that perhaps I mean I don't know it is difficult but it's always going to be difficult for Channel 4 they had five breaks in the first 80 minutes apparently I wasn't counting the Daily Mail was by the way yeah it feels like all wrong the balance is all wrong and they've perhaps misunderstood what the whole watching experience would be like as well I think that's the thing isn't it maybe showing inexperience with that kind of thing perhaps 
And there's a lot riding on it, uh, apart, quite apart from the £9 million they spent on the rights. People at Channel 4 are talking about how it could sort of redefine the channel in the post-Big Brother era and kind of finally finally get that uh, reality show out of people's minds and associate Channel 4 with, with something different. So, uh, you know, it lasts 11 days and they've got 150 hours of live sports. So, uh, you know, they're, they're banking on this, Vicky. Yeah, and I think it could really transform Channel 4, you know, which has looked at times sort of a bit tatty, a bit down market, a bit, you know, some terribly, even some very good programmes, but with awful titles, you know, that sort of rut they've got themselves into. And I think it could really transform perceptions and take and sort of re-establish and remind people really of what Channel 4 stands for. And I think they have done some things really well, like they're presenting talent. They've really searched for and brought on uh, disabled uh, either uh, ex-competitors or journalists or presenters or you know they've done a really big talent search and so they've sort of made loads of steps in the right direction and it would seem it would seem a shame if basically they suffered by comparison with the BBC which of course has more resource and obviously no adverts you know I think one, one of the shame. big mistakes though is not to have the anchor show in the Olympic Park I mean they're with you know, they pioneered that kind of thing with Claire Balding, in fact, on with horse racing. They have done it before. I don't know why they didn't do it, what, what the limitations were. It just feels like you're watching when they cut to Jon Snow and those in the studio, you're just looking at a different coloured news studio. It just doesn't feel right. And it's tough for them. The BBC, uh, the success of the BBC's coverage was it was a was a positive and a negative, wasn't it? It really kind of ramped up expectation and everyone's really excited about it. But at the same time, you know, they don't get a licence fee and they haven't got the money to spend on 24 dedicated digital channels. So, uh, you know, they're always going to suffer in comparison. Well, I mean, the BBC threw everything but the kitchen sink at it, you know, and rightly, that's exactly what the BBC should do. But that automatically means that Channel 4 are going to find themselves in a bit of a tricky place when it comes to their coverage in comparison with the BBCs, and, and the general viewer perhaps isn't as prepared to cut them some slack because of their different situation as maybe commentators are. Well, it's still day one of the Paralympics at the time of recording, so we'll return to how Channel 4 is covering the Games next week. A couple of big TV events this year. You've got the um, Diamond Jubilee, you've got the Euros, Euro 2012 football, you've got the uh, Olympics, of course, and uh, Daybreak. Daybreak's back next week. <laughs> uh, on the new look, relaunched better than ever, Daybreak with uh, Lorraine Kelly, who uh, will be familiar to Breakfast Time viewers, and uh, Alad Jones, who yeah. will be familiar to viewers of The Snowman. <laughs> Although he didn't actually sing the song and that songs was in The praise. Snowman. And Songs of Praise. And Songs of, course, of Praise. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, it's very interesting, that lineup, isn't it? It's like a real, like, GMTV, that was good. Let's just go back to doing GMTV. Yeah, well, that's how it feels you know, who, to me. Who under the age of 40 will know Alad Jones, or under the age of 35 will know Alad Jones? Well, nobody, really. I would think. It's slightly odd. I mean, Will he be a housewife's favourite? Is he a housewife's favourite? I don't think he is really a housewife's favourite, to be honest. Um, I mean, he's very nice, I'm sure. It's, it's an interesting thing. I suppose he's a foil for Lorraine Kelly, largely, I would imagine. I mean, she's like the big kind of draw among, between those two. I mean, it will be interesting to see whether Daybreak really can can manage to invent itself. I'm, I'm sort of surprised it's sticking with its name because it's a bit like Doom, isn't it? It's like Daybreak is just... Doom, doom, doom. They've already, you know, they've relaunched, they've launched it, then they had that in-between phase. Now there's a relaunch, all within a very small, short space of time, and you just think, maybe we just call it something else, start again, except it didn't work. They've know? got a new logo, <laughs> which... Start again. <laughs> start again. <laughs> <laughs> they've got a new logo, which does look uncannily like the GMTV logo, so uh, yeah, there may be some sense there. And uh, I'm presuming the set won't have a backdrop of, um, of the London 
uh, nightline, as it turned out, because it gets dark until that. Uh, <laughs> so terrible, that, wasn't it? And presumably no purple sofas. I mean, it was just appalling, all of it. But, you know, good luck. Good luck to Daybreak, because, you know, the BBC Breakfast programme, frankly, needs, uh, needs some decent competition, don't you think? Really does. It's really bad. Uh, you know, soon they're going to be just interviewing people out of their canteen if it doesn't sort of pull its socks up. It's appalling. The, the quality of guests they have is awful. And I say that as a Mancunian, you know. I'm not sort of against people moving things to the north, but... You, you know, if you're doing a breakfast magazine programme, you've got to make sure you've got the quality of guests there, and I just don't think they have. Well, Daybreak's back on Monday, but let's look a bit further ahead to the autumn schedule, Vicky. Um, what else What else we got to... Uh, what, what else can we get all excited about? There are loads of good things, actually, in the autumn schedule. I am quite excited about it. Um, there are lots of things coming back, which is, which is nice, and I think is sort of healthy for British telly. That's a good thing. So uh, there's a new series of Top Boy... Homeland, Peep Show, Fresh Meat on Channel 4. Uh, a back on form Downton is going to be back to ITV1. Doctor Who restarts on Saturday on BBC One, on BBC Two. The Thick of It's back soon. The Hour's coming back. Modern Family's back to Sky One. I mean, it is really quite jolly when you look at it sort of lined up in that way, just in terms of returning shows. And then, of course, there's new stuff as well. There is Hunted, which, you know, <laughs> which is BBC One, which is, you know, looks like spooks, sounds like spooks, is made by the same people as spooks, but is sort of, you know, more international, a bit glossier, a bit more ridiculous. More ridiculous than spooks? Well, sort of of an equal ridiculousness, actually, I think. I mean, I watched it yesterday and I'm still slightly not sure entirely what I think of it. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how that develops. I mean, it's hard to judge it on first episodes. ITV has the classy-looking, I think, Mrs Biggs, which starts quite great. soon. Yeah, yeah and um, starring Sheridan Smith, who I just think is totally underrated. So uh, she stars as uh, Charmian Biggs, and uh, while Danny Mays plays, uh, plays Ronnie Biggs, and Danny Mays is just brilliant in everything, it seems. So they're really great. And the show was made, I think you were saying up in Edinburgh, it was made with Charmaine's approval. She mm. she was a consultant on the show. Yeah, And yeah. she's still in touch with Ronnie Biggs. Went to see him quite recently when she came over from Australia. Yeah. She met him at 19, and it's just an extraordinary love story. Oh, it's just, the whole story is astonishing. And I think she actually, I think Sheridan, she did like quite a lot of work with Sheridan Smith, who, who you know, is sort of, you know, everyone thinks, oh, she's musical theatre and she's comedy and, you know, terrible two-pants log and all, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, she just really plays this brilliantly. I think she's fantastic in it. So that's very thrilling. And uh, now Channel 4 have this very interesting stroke bonkers thing coming up in the autumn uh, which at the moment is called Hotel GB although I, I don't I think that's a working title but basically they're setting up a hotel and it's going to be run by Mary Portis and uh, Gordon Ramsay and basically they're big faces and then viewers you Gok can well yes I presume so although he's not in the running order I'd be surprised if he wasn't there somehow I don't know what he could do what would he do dressing you that's He'll not really a, a thing for a hotel is it he'll be selling <laughs> spectacles in the lobby <laughs> So, but you can apply to stay in this hotel uh, if you email beahotelguest at optimum.com. Well, it's I, a I Gordon Ramsay and Mary Porter. I just imagine sort of like, you know, the TripAdvisor sort of reviews afterwards. <laughs> I'm just replying to you. I can't decide whether I think it's genius or bonkers yeah, or both. All their stars are in it. The, the chat from uh, Location Location uh, is in it. And, um, Phil. Phil, what's his name? Phil Spencer. And uh, I don't know. Do you know what? Uh, 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 part what's of me. What's he going to do in it? He's all, what, is he going to rearrange find your room? room? What's, what's that going to be? He's going to try and buy a room, and they'll say, "No, <laughs> Phil, it's a hotel. 
You cannot buy it. But uh, part of me, about one-tenth of me is excited by this, and nine-tenths of me is thinking, Channel 5, back to reality. Oh, do you remember that the reality yeah, show in which yeah, they get all the, all the yeah, greatest, right. all the biggest stars from reality shows gone previously, and it was a, a crock of crap. I think the problem is these shows—they're not the sum of their parts, are they? You know. Um, well, I am sort of—I sort of think Mary Porter's would run a kick-ass hotel. In fact, I think she'd run a brilliant hotel. Maybe just have her doing it by herself. And, well, pretty and much cut the budget and yeah, uh, pretty much I would go to Mary Porter's hotel. So maybe that is uh, could be more fun to stay in than watch. I think. Yeah, I, I feel. Yeah, maybe actually. I mean. What are you going to watch people doing? Now, I mean, I haven't really thought this through properly, but people normally go to hotels to sleep, don't they? So, Although Channel 4 had its very successful documentary about the hotel, which I sort of loved, but that didn't have Mary Porter's in it. Mm. Would have, wouldn't, probably wouldn't have benefited yeah, from her either. Wasn't it a very grand hotel up in Liverpool, wasn't it? Oh, no, I think oh, that was, was that something BBC else. Two? That was BBC Two's The Adelphi. Hotels, I can't get enough of them. And what's the last Channel 4 high-concept thing? It was Notting Hill. That didn't do too well. Seven days did it turn out to be. Uh, yeah, 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 seven viewers. But anyway, good luck to um, Hotel GB. And uh, we can't go without mentioning Parade's End, which no. the entire um, upper echelons of the TV industry missed because they were in Edinburgh last week. But hopefully they all set their um, Sky Plus. Other PVRs are available. But, uh, do you know, I've never seen uh, a, a show where there's been such a divide between the reviews, which were, you know, unanimously uh, fulsome, and uh, comments underneath those reviews, which tended to moan about sort of the garbled dialogue or, or the plot being incredibly complicated. Uh, so... Uh, uh, I got to be. I watched it, and uh, I wasn't entirely sure what was going on all the way through. I that might reflect more on my intellect than the, the production. <laughs> I, I would never comment upon that, John. Ever. Um, I fall somewhere between the two. Actually, um, there's lots of it I like. I really like its ambition. I love the performances. I mean, Rebecca Hall is fantastic in this. I mean, actually, far better than Cumberbatch. I think you know she for me is the reason to turn on and watch this because she is totally brilliant, and some of the dialogue's very beautiful. But I, I sort of wonder about just. Why adapt this? Because there are like real flaws in the structure and the storytelling that I don't think it's about. That's a problem with Tom Stoppard. I think it's maybe a problem with the source material, and maybe this was just a bit difficult to adapt. I mean, I think the thing difficult to establish all those characters. You know, give them allow audiences to build some empathy um, with the characters in, in the first episode, isn't it? There's quite a lot of jumping around. You don't really stay with anyone for particularly long. I don't know. I didn't actually find that a problem, I don't think. I think, I think you know, a lot of people have sort of said, though, it was all mumbled, couldn't hear the dialogue. And I've got to be honest, uh, that's the same thing that happened with Birdsong as well, actually. There was a lot of complaints about that as well. And I don't know whether this is something that actually so it doesn't get noticed by critics because lots of critics will have seen it in a screening room. I saw it in on a big screen and very beautiful it looked too and the sound was beautifully mixed. And I wonder whether... Critics are seeing it in that situation, and then lots of other people are watching it at home on their TVs, and it's not the sound's not working in the same way. I don't know if that's something actually the BBC just need to address. I mean, lots of people do seem to be saying this about BBC programmes quite often about BBC drama. Whereas Mark Lawson said in The Guardian, if you think they're grumbling or mumbling on TV, it just means you're getting old. Well, exactly, and we should always listen to Lawson, so maybe that is the truth. Well, uh, indeed. Well, my thanks to Lisa O'Carroll and to Vicky Frost and to my other guests this week. Mark Sweeney, and of course, to Michael Price. You can comment on everything you've heard on the podcast on our blog or our Facebook wall, where you can also share your favourite TV theme tunes and episodes of Ever Decreasing Circles. Mine's the one with the cricket match. My name's John Plunkett, and Media Talk was produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. 
Don't you Brits feel like celebrating those 14 days of sporting glory? Of course you do. So why not do it with a strictly unofficial, but suitably stylish philosophy football design t-shirt? This unique t-shirt is a wearable, chronological, and color-coded record of an unforgettable fortnight. And for Guardian and Observer podcast fans, we have a special offer of three pounds off and free post and packaging. Curious? Well, to see how good this unique t-shirt looks, and to take advantage of our listeners' offer, just go to guardian.co.uk slash podcast offers. I dare you.